Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, in the New Testament section of our Red Bibles on page 4. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Dear Lord, thank you for your love and your guidance. Please be with us as we listen to the things that we should be thinking and doing in our lives and how we can be blessed in living and doing for you. In thy name, amen. Matthew 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds that followed him, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, good morning to each and every one of you. It's good to be here. It's good to be free from my flu exile. It's just good to be back out and about once again. Thank you for the prayers. Thank you for your concerns. And I'm just here to testify that God is good. And uh, his grace, his mercy endures forever. And it's good to be back among people who love God, who love each other, and who care about God's world. Before we come to the communion table, I, I want us to, and I think I can safely say this, we want to, we want to continue reading in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Because really, if you think about it, when we were going through parts of Advent and coming into the new year, we actually were reading in various sections of the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, between this Sunday and Ash Wednesday, which is February 26th, 
we will continue reading through large sections of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think on Ash Wednesday, actually, the text for that day will really set us up nicely to begin our journey into Lent. You know, I was, as I've been thinking and preparing for this text, I thought to myself how lovely it would be if we had nine weeks to look at what I call this nine-storied mountain that we call the Beatitudes, these nine principles, these nine statements of Jesus, but we don't. We are coming to the communion table here in the next few minutes, and so what I'd like to do instead is to have a step back and sort of take a wide-angle look at this message and what it means for us. One of the things we have to settle in our minds as we read the Sermon on the Mount is to try to say, well, who is the audience? Who is this for? And the clue is there. You heard it in the reading. Chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds. So if you go back to chapter 4, starting at verse 23, Jesus has gone viral. He didn't use Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or a public relation agent, but Jesus is suddenly known everywhere because of his teaching because of his healings, because of his miracles, because of all that he's doing. Thousands of people are coming from all over the place to hear this man teach. But there is something going on, I think, why Jesus stops this revival, this massive following. It's as if Jesus does this. He says, time out. Because what Matthew wants us to understand about Jesus is that Jesus is the new Moses. And there, there is so much parallel going on here between the story of Moses' life and these early occurrences of the life of Jesus. There is so much that's going on here. And during Advent, of course, as we were reading through the Gospel of Matthew, we took the time to sort of trace out how the story of Jesus' life connects back to this long-standing story that goes all the way back through the prophets, Micah and Isaiah, who predicted that a time would come when a Messiah would come. He would be born of a virgin. He would be born, as Micah says, in this town of Bethlehem of Judea. Isaiah says that when he comes, he will bring, he will bring healing and he will set the prisoner free and he'd be doing all these amazing things. And you know what's going on in the minds of the people because they're very much conversant with the Old Testament. They're imagining that Jesus is the new Moses. That just as Moses came to liberate the people, 430 years of slavery, that Jesus is coming to do the same, to liberate his people from Roman oppression. That just as Moses came out of Egypt, Jesus came out of Egypt when he heard that that uh, Herod was dead. Just as Moses crossed the waters, the Red Sea, into the land, Jesus came out of the waters of baptism in the Jordan River. Just as Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Just as Moses went up to the mountain to receive the commandments and the teachings of God so that he could give it to the people, so that God could form these people in the wilderness, Jesus goes up to the mountain, and he goes up to the mountain and issues this teaching, this manifesto. Jesus calls time out, because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you begin to get a picture of what Jesus' kingdom is going to be like. And Jesus wants to be clear, listen guys, I am not here to start a third party. I'm not here to run for office. 
I'm not here to be a political or a military warrior. I am here to usher in a new kingdom. And if you look in chapter 4 very clearly, it says there, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. It is present. And so he wants them to understand what his kingdom is about. He's here to raise up a people. And so I believe chapters 5 through 7 is Jesus' time out to say, here is what it means to be part of my kingdom. That's why I think it's important if you're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount and you're going to understand the Beatitudes, you have to understand who is the audience. And it's very clear, Jesus isn't preaching to the crowds at this point. He sat down, the disciples came to him, and he begins to teach them. It's not upper-class Palestinians. It is rank-and-file Palestinian Jewish people, real people with real families, with real concerns. And the Beatitudes now begin to make sense because it is an upside-down message. It's not the kind of message you would hear in the halls of power in Jerusalem. It's a message that is very strange, very different. And Jesus is saying, this is what the blessed life looks like. I know that for us living in America, it's very difficult to understand this. Because if Jesus had only said, blessed are those who are full of joy in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, we could get that. Blessed are those who are strong, not meek, for they will inherit the land, we could get that. Blessed are and you could just go on and add the, the, the ways in which we understand the blessed life. And Jesus flips it. And he says, no, it's very, very different. A life that flourishes, it is very, very different. And it is hard. And it is dark. And if we will dare to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, as so many Christians have done through the centuries, and you begin to expose yourself to a way of life in the world that doesn't conform to this world where you are going to be ridiculed. You will not fit in. People are going to think you're weird. Then you can begin to understand what is going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not here to establish a political kingdom. I'm here to call a people. I'm here to confront oppression. I'm here to confront evil. I'm here to give my life as an ultimate sacrifice on the cross, I'm here to raise up a movement. I'm here to make disciples, and these people are going to follow me in a very distinct way. Then the sermon begins to make sense. You know, years ago, I read a, a very challenging book uh, written by an African-American attorney by the name of Brian Stevenson. The book's called Just Mercy. He went on and he founded the Equal Justice Initiative. This is a nonprofit organization in Alabama that's dedicated to defending the poor, those who are wrongly condemned, those who are trapped in the bowels of the, the, the criminal justice system. This man, for more than 30 years, the day he graduated Harvard Law School, he has continued to stay in this lane. He is fighting for people for whom the prison doors are locked and the keys have been thrown away. People that, you know, many of us, including myself, we just forget. His book has now become a very important movie, and I'm not, 
necessarily promoting the movie, but I would encourage you to see it. The, book, the movie is titled Just as the Book. It's called Just Mercy. And Brian Stevenson's role is played by, by Michael B. Jordan. And it was when I was reading this book again, because when I went back to see the movie, I was so moved, I started reading the book again. It was when I was reading the book again that I saw for the first time how the Beatitudes are played out in parts of this book. I even wrote in the margin of a section of my book, The Beatitudes. There was a scene in the book, and it made it into the movie, where Brian Stevenson is a, he's this 23-year-old second-year law student. He's doing an internship with an organization in Atlanta called the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee in Atlanta. And one of his first assignments as an as, a, as an intern is to drive deep into, into the heart of South Georgia, into, into, into rural Georgia, Butts County, Georgia, to visit a 23-year-old death row inmate. And we didn't get his last name, but his name is called Henry. And Stevenson, as he's driving down to this maximum security prison, he talks about how he's filled with fear and anxiety because he's not a trained lawyer. He's going to a place he's never gone to. He's going to be talking to people that he's never talked to before. And he just feels like a fish out of water. He's supposed to spend an hour with this man. And the responsibility that his superiors gave him was to tell this man, this is your message, tell this man that he will not be executed this year. Turns out that this was actually good news for the man. The man went on and said, one of the reasons why I've never invited my wife and my kids to come and visit me is because I don't ever want them to come possibly on a day when I've been, I've received a date. And he says, now that you're telling me that I'm not going to be executed for more than a year, I can tell my wife and my kids to come on down and to visit me. Eventually the visit ends. The guard returns, and the guard is in a foul mood. He snaps on the handcuffs on the man's wrist and on his ankles, and he does it in such a harsh way that it's really tight, and the guy winces. But amazingly, as the guard is dragging this man back to his cell, Henry begins singing with the most beautiful, the most beautiful baritone voice, actually an old hymn that I learned back in our church back in Jamaica. And some of you here know this hymn, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. This is a death row inmate with the shadow of death hanging over him. And he's singing at the top of his voice, Lord, lift me up and let me stand. By faith on heaven's table land, a higher plain than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. He kept singing with great joy these words as he's being pulled like cattle back to his cell. And then Stevenson wrote these words, and I share them with you. I sat down completely stunned 
Henry's voice was filled with desire. I experienced his song as a precious gift. I had come into the prison with such anxiety and fear about his willingness to tolerate my inadequacy. I didn't expect him to be compassionate or generous. I had no right to expect anything from a condemned man on death row. Yet he gave me an astonishing measure of his humanity. In that moment, Henry altered something in my understanding. This is important. He altered something in my understanding of human potential, redemption, and hopelessness. And he said this, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Can you say amen to that? I have come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich and the powerful and the privileged and the respected among us. Listen to this, church. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor and the disfavored and the accused and the incarcerated and the condemned. And when I read those words, I wrote Beatitudes because you see in today's reading, Jesus, the new Moses, shines the spotlight not on the rich, not on the famous, not on the powerful, as models of his kingdom, He shines the light on disciples, and that's the audience, disciples who are either suffering or will be suffering, who will be disfavored, who will be accused, who will be persecuted, who will struggle, who will be downpressed and overlooked, and despite their outward circumstances, Jesus says these people are blessed. And so for the longest while, I had made the mistake of reading the Beatitudes as this is what we need to do. I need to be poor in spirit. I need to be meek. I need to be a peacemaker when in fact, uh uh-uh. It's not about what we need to be. It is who we are. And because of who we are, The scriptures tell us despite our circumstances, we are blessed, we are flourishing, and of course, in the end, we will, we will inherit the kingdom of heaven. We will be comforted. We will obtain mercy. We will be called children of God. We will see God, and on and on and on, despite what's going on among these disciples, we are a flourishing and a blessed people, and it has nothing to do with what we have in the bank. Now, the minute I wrote those words, I also went back to a lot of the accusations that, and the incoming kind of skepticism that I've taken when I've talked about the life to come. Because one of the things you hear people saying, well, Pastor, when you talk like that, that is the reason why Karl Marx so despised religion because he said religion was used as the opiate to sort, of, to sort of put somnolescence on the people, get them to sort of be at home in their unjust circumstances and do nothing about it. You're asking those under oppression to wait for the sweet by and by. 
You're promoting passivity. You are, you are promoting weakness in the face of evil. You're giving the impression that God is more concerned about people's future than their present circumstances. And that is so far from the reality of the Sermon on the Mount. If anything, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount show Jesus' disciples flourishing despite their current hardships, and it shows their future blessings. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount doesn't promote passivity. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount does not promote the acceptance and the cowering in the face of evil. That's the reason why all those qualities that you see there are, it's almost the, the attitude, the posture of the disciples in the world. They're poor in spirit because there is so much that's wrong with the world. They're mourning because there's so much that's wrong with the world. They're meek. They're peacemakers because there is so much that's wrong in the world. Jesus says in the sermon, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Let your light shine. There's nothing passive about that. In fact, he says, don't cover your light. Let your light shine. Do good works in my name. Here's a hymn that we sing here at the church that I also love to sing. And it just screams, not passivism, not quietism, but activism in the name of Jesus. It says, lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with, not with swords loud clashing, or roll of stirring drums with deeds of love and mercy. Don't miss that. Some of us are such angry Christians. Some of us are such disdainful Christians. We're such cloistered Christians. We're so captured by the agenda of the world. And Jesus says, no. Those who follow me, the king, it's with deeds of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. And that's why I'm proud to be part of First Prayers because we're seeking to be a kingdom people. We're seeking to be salt and light. We're seeking to be disciples who embody the Beatitudes despite what the world says about us and the persecution and the difficulties we're going through because we know that we're flourishing now and we know that we will flourish in the end. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's children say,